Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. Today, I'll be speaking with former FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss. Prior to becoming the FBI lead international kidnapping negotiator, Chris served as the lead crisis negotiator for the New York City Division of the FBI and was a member of the New York City Joint Terrorist Task Force for 14 years. On today's episode, we'll take an intimate look into the art of negotiation and its importance in the world of entrepreneurship and business. We'll explore his world-renowned negotiation tactics and strategies, learning how even those who have never negotiated before can start applying them in their lives today. You'll learn how Chris found a way to masterfully turn obstacles into opportunities for decades and how you can too doing the exact same. Hey, Chris, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining. Yes, Stephanie. I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation see what we uncover. I am as well. So Chris, when I was reading your research and going through your book, it's like a million movies that we've all seen. This calm, cool- Three Stooges co- movies, right? Yes, that's the one. That's <laughs> Laurel and Hardy, I was thinking, actually. All right, yeah. <laughs> you know, the calm, cool negotiator, the guy who is unflappable, the guy who kind of never loses it inside, just has these incredibly amazing skills and goes out and negotiates for life. How do you become an FBI negotiator? Yeah, wow. You get in over your head a whole bunch of different times. Without <laughs> right. <realizing it. laughs> and then you try to figure it out. Now, you know, it's, uh, I was originally a SWAT guy. I mean, I was on a SWAT team with the FBI and uh, I re-injured my knee and I like it and I like crisis response. I mean, I like, I'm a decision-making kind of guy. There's one profile, everybody in my company, my company, we get coached by a strategic coach. And I can't remember what the name of the psychological profile is that they had us all take, but I'm quick start. Like I like to let's, let's gather some data. Let's make a decision. Let's move forward, which is what you got to do in crisis response. So, you know, I was on a SWAT team and I want to stay in crisis response because I like decision-making. I hate comfortable inaction to use a phrase from Kennedy way back when. So we had negotiators. I'm like, yeah, I want to stay in the game. You know what those guys do? It doesn't look that hard. Like anything that doesn't look hard, it, it's there's a lot of depth to it. And then uh, initially, you know, they wouldn't take me as a negotiator, and I found out what I needed to do, and I got in. But it's by it's by invitation only. I mean, FBI negotiators. It's an or in any law enforcement agency. It's it's an additional duty. So. You know, you tell them you want to be involved and then they kind of test you to see whether or not you really meant that or are you just looking for the T-shirt? Right. Of which and you were not. It. No, I, no, I meant that uh, I'm happy to wear the T-shirt. You know, I, you know, we were talking a minute ago, um, you know, you asked me where I'm living. I'm living in Las Vegas and I now I have contact with Las Vegas Metro Police Department, their hostage negotiation team because they're in my backyard and I might as well help these guys if I can. Right. They're a sharp team. They turn out all the time. I mean, for I was surprised at how busy they are. And uh, so, but I got the T-shirt. <laughs> it gave me a T-shirt. I wear it when I travel. That's awesome, Chris. So, 
when we were talking before, I told you that I do a lot around crisis, crisis expert. We solve a lot of, a lot of things that, that need to be negotiated both with attorneys and, and with, and with large teams. And I've been pretty effective, not nearly as effective as you. I'm hoping to take your, your, your one-on-one class where you come tell me how to negotiate master deals, but I've, I've done pretty well. And one of the things I get asked a lot is how, how did I get here? And for me, I had a very chaotic childhood. My father drowned when I was three. My mother had a massive psychotic break. I was emancipated at 15. There was a giant tiger that was chasing me and I was constantly in survivor mode. So I learned skills that later I learned how not to manipulate and how to actually get what I wanted by being very truthful, but also by drawing energy from people, asking great questions, asking provocative questions, really hearing what's not being said, those type of things. Yeah. What for you, anything in childhood, what made you as good as you are, Chris? Because you are phenomenal for our listeners. We'll talk about his book later, but you really need to understand who this human being is that we have the honor of of actually speaking with today. <laughs> yeah, when's he going to be on? Because I want to listen to him. 25 also. minutes. So hurry up. Let's go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know if there's anything particularly in my childhood. I, You know, I grew up in a blue-collar environment, small-town Midwest, son of Richard and Joyce Voss, Mount Pleasant, Iowa. My dad was a blue-collar guy. And I, I think his attitude was like, these kids are, you know, I got to pay to feed them. I got to put them to work. So, you know, we were given tasks and told to figure it out. So there was a high premium placed on adaptability initiative, figure it out, be autonomous among all of us growing up. And then, you know, I don't know why I always liked, I like decisions, as I said, moving forward. I can't point to that specifically. Maybe it was you know, guidance from my father. But then when I got into hostage negotiation, once I decided to do it, you know, they told me you got to volunteer on a suicide hotline. So I'm volunteering on the hotline and I'm like, this stuff is cool. I mean, you can influence somebody for the good in a really short period of time if you know what you're doing. And it ain't that hard to know what you're doing because you do what they tell you to do and do it over and over and over again and it'll sink in and so i thought if this works on a suicide hotline maybe it works everywhere and and point to fact it does because human decision making is follows the same basic algorithm if you will regardless of the circumstances whether you're a terrorist or whether you're somebody in a business you're making your decisions based on fear of loss and identity issues and that's pretty that's you gather those two things up and then how to how to somebody see the fear of loss playing out in their future it doesn't matter who you are whether you're a member of al qaeda whether you're a member of a, of a political party whether or not you're just trying to find get your way through the day and so i thought this is cool you know, I, I enjoy helping people. I enjoy succeeding and helping people simultaneously. So I've heard this question asked a few times of you. I want to ask it a little differently, and I want to ask it from more of a personal a personal standpoint. I have never had to negotiate for, you know, in any sort of terrorist situation, but I have had to negotiate with suicide. And that was incredibly difficult, and, and it came out of absolutely nowhere. So we can have that conversation later when over drinks or something. But it was shocking how it happened. And I, thankfully, I was able to to have a very positive 
reaction and a very positive response. Good for you for being there for that person. And and what an incredible human being he is. And I, I am thankful. I literally pray and I'm thankful for it every single day. But it's interesting, Chris, because when I talk to people, and not very many people know, maybe like five or six people know the sto- the actual story. They go, were you scared? Okay. Uh, right. It was so interesting for me. Not one ounce of fear was in me. I didn't right. one time even, it wasn't even an option. It was like, okay, this is what we're doing. Let's do this. How about this? How about this? How about this? It was, it was no fear, but I will tell you when I was done and he was safe, I clicked off the phone. I turned to my husband and I burst into tears because he had five little ones. And for me, he wasn't thinking clearly for me. I was thinking very, very clearly. Have you ever been truly afraid? And then how do you process it? How does it go through you? Not when my professional self is clicked in, kicked in, you know, when I, when I tap into that and like, as you talk, as you're talking about it, like, you know, I can offer what I think is an explanation for why there was no fear there. Also, interestingly enough, one of the few differences in, uh, as a layman, not a neuroscientist, I understand between differences between men and women, very few in the mental functioning. Mm. But I can also I could also comment on why you burst into tears afterwards. But so and, and why you weren't afraid in the first place. Like if it's a privilege, you're not going to be afraid. Like if what if you genuinely feel that whatever you're doing is a privilege. Now that so basically that's a positive s- state of mind. So you've locked yourself out of the fear. Fears in a negative side, privileges in a positive side. There there are a number of mental states that use uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's term anti fragile. Great book, 2012 book. Taleb's uh, writing sometimes is complicated. And also his point of view, sometimes the voice that he writes from could put you off. But he's, it's brilliant writing. And he can, it, to, to my knowledge, he came up with the term anti-fragile, which, you know, you, you, you're in a crisis and you feed off of it instead of turning away from it. So if you feel like something's a privilege... You're gonna you're gonna be very close to your high, highest state of mental functioning, and my guess is when you were there for that person, you felt privileged that you were, had the opportunity to help somebody in their darkest hour, and consequently, that, you're not gonna be afraid. That's incredibly enlightening because I never really knew why, but that when you said privilege, that's exactly how I felt. I felt like I was so blessed to get that call to be free at that exact moment. This is a privilege and an honor, and I was very respectful of that. Now that you unpack that for me, thank you so much. I'll send you your fee. Um, why, did I, why did I cry? Well, again, very few differences in the way women's brains function and men's do. Very few. But one of my understandings is, is that women cry as stress relief. And men cry for completely different reasons, Mm. which is why in many cases, a man misunderstands a woman crying. You know, a woman can cry. And if it's stress relief, she gets a good cry. She gets it over. She picks herself up and moves on. Yeah. And a man cries. Like if I cry, I'm done. I got to, I got to sleep for eight hours. It's exhausting. You know, I got to, I got to curl up in a fetal position and I got to, because crying exhausts me. And so a man looks at a woman crying and I'm like, you know, that's a sign of, you're, you're going to be useless for the next 12 hours after you cry. And, and we don't understand. And then women go like, no, what's the matter with you, bozo? And I'm getting this out of my system and I'll be fine in five minutes. And I think that's one of the very, one of the very few differences. I don't know how that wiring is in there, Yeah. but I, as a layman, I see that showing up. 
Yeah, that's so interesting because that's almost, I mean, it was a three and a half hour call. And then after that, I went to dinner because I had commitments and I was like, I got to go. I had people flying in to see me and I didn't want to disappoint anybody, but I cried really hard for probably three to five minutes. And I was like, okay, thank you so much for that honor and that privilege. I just felt really good and calm and peaceful. And everybody was looking at me like, are you okay? <laughs> like what's going on? Right. Yeah. And I was ready. I was like, okay, next. So that's well, right. Amazing. Especially, I'm sure your husband too. He probably figures like, if I, you know, and that's that whole problem with projection bias and all the rest of it. Yeah. He's like if I was crying like that, I'd be done. For, I'd, I need a bottle of whiskey. And then right. He went to go take a nap. Hours. He went to go take a nap after I was crying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what do you think about negotiation? Do you think it's innate or do you think it's learned? Uh, I think it's almost exclusive, completely learned. I mean, I'm a big subscriber, Daniel Coyle, Mm. Two books that he wrote that I and my team, Black Swan Group, very big fans of both the culture code and the talent code. Talent code is about the individual. Culture code is about the company. Coil's contention in the talent code is that everything is learned, that there's no such thing as a prodigy, that for whatever reason, a child prodigy's got interested in something before anybody else noticed, and they got their time in, and suddenly, bang, the first time somebody noticed, they'd been at it for a while, and it got good. And largely, I think that's true. I think there's certain exceptions. I think some people have certain, some innate abilities that for whatever reason they're born with. I'm watching a documentary about a very ridiculously successful music producer that at age three, you know, he, he said, tells a story where his mother had a note on a piano and he says, that's an E. You know, he probably had some innate abilities to start with. But other than that, and negotiations on a list, you can learn it. How do you start to learn it? So you're not good. You've been told that. It was actually really funny, Chris. I'll tell you this because I think you'll just absolutely laugh. I was getting ready to take a new client a few weeks ago and the ask was ridiculous. And... Uh, it was just, it was, it was absolutely insane. And I was trying really hard to be very respectful and very kind, but I was like, this is not even real. Like Ashton Kutcher is going to jump out at any moment and, and be like, this is not real. You're punked. Yeah, exactly. And I just kept waiting and I said, Hey, I said, how, how are you at negotiating? Like how, how does that work? And, and the, the gentleman said, I am so good at this. I got an A in that class. 40. Yeah. That was 40. I was like, okay. I <laughs> How do you teach people how to begin to practice and get better at negotiating? Well, negotiation is a perishable skill to start with. So the description that you just gave me sounds like a guy who got an A, checked off the box, figured it was like riding a bike. Yeah. Somebody rated me as an A. I'm good. I don't need to learn anything. And point the fact, anybody that meets me and says, I'm a great negotiator. <laughs> to me, that's an indicator, uh, not just of a closed mind, but if somebody hasn't learned anything in a really long time. Like in in my view, easily probably the two greatest negotiators would be both Oprah and Warren Buffett. Neither one of them are bragging about being great negotiators. Like Oprah, I mean, the deals that she's she's negotiated or the things that she's gotten people to say is ridiculous. Like anybody could envy that track record. So my assessment first, I'm a great negotiator. That's a bad thing. And secondly, like, where did you take that class? Who taught you that class? You know, I could dive into you. Why? Probably you didn't learn anything in that class. You know, depending upon how it was structured. Maybe you did. But it so, surely wasn't how to be an effective negotiator, I promise. <laughs> 
Yeah, there you go, right? You were being kind. Like, this guy was a bozo. He needed you more than he than he realized. And, and the mere fact that he said that, you were like, I don't know if I got enough time to help you. You were in, you were, you might be uncoachable. That's pretty much that. I, were you on the call? Because I feel like that's pretty <laughs> much exactly how it ended. What do people do to practice? Uh, small stakes practice for high stakes results. Like, the, the first thing, too, is, like, getting a read on somebody. You know, getting good at, at, at reading emotions. And how do you get good at that? You just practice. You just, and it's, it'll come to you quick if you start practicing. And how do you practice? You know, take a look at somebody, get a read on their mindset based on a look on their face, their body language, their tone of voice. You can get that in nanoseconds. Like you can get a good read on somebody in three seconds or less. And then throw it out there as an observation. And then it'll be data improves design. Be willing to be guided by the feedback. And then you just got to do with that. You know, you do cold reads wherever you go. You know, don't say, how are you to somebody? How are you doing today? Speculate on how they are. You know, take a shot at it. And and the more you do it in very short order, people are going to, they feel seen, which yeah. is tremendously gratifying for them as human beings. And they feel connected to, and then you just get better at it. And, and that's really how you begin to get good at, at emotional intelligence is start taking reads. Every human being has got a supercomputer between their ears that's capable of processing vast amounts of data. So what's your impulse when you see somebody? And, uh, you know, don't react to your impulse. Don't give in to your impulse. Don't discard your impulse. Be guided by it. Be enlightened by it. That's beautiful. Then, I always say develop. Develop your impulse. And and that's that's the same thing. How do yeah. you develop it? You listen to yes. it. Yes. And then do some testing. Like the other day, uh, I travel a lot. So for one reason or another, I'm frequently in negotiations with TSA because I'm always carrying a bottle with water in it because I, I like Voss water bottles, shockingly enough. And then half the time I forgot to take the water out of it. And I don't want to go all the way back out to the curb or however, I don't want to leave security entirely. And I don't want to throw the bottle away for a variety of reasons. So I got to negotiate either cutting a line or getting out of it entirely. Now, the other day I happened to go through TSA smoothly, no problems. So I'm like, oh, I haven't done a cold read on anybody. Guy at the very end, I'm not getting a strong read on him one way or another. And my typical read is I'll say tough day. <laughs> and people love that. I mean, if they're yeah. having a bad day, you say tough day. Yeah. Like you, you lift the burden off, off their shoulders instantly. And, and he goes, he goes like, no. Nah. And so then now dad improves design. I go just another day, huh? And he goes, yeah, just another day. And I got a smile at him. Now, 20 minutes later, I'm in a conversation that I did not expect, which was a phone conversation, short amount of time. I got to make the deal. But since I warmed up on the TSA guy, you know, like it's like going into the game. You got to warm up a little bit first. I ended up pulling off the conversation I did not expect because I had just done a read a little bit earlier and my read synapses still had electricity in them and it helped me in, in the call. So short and very long answer to your short question practice practice on everybody that's around you in small stakes interactions and how exactly does your wife feel about this <laughs> all right so give uh, it to me straight chris give it to me straight current girlfriend okay uh who uh, i you know we've been together for a while and i don't see that changing 
You know, she's a wonderful human being. I love being around her. She makes me very, very happy. Trustworthy people trust. So we trust each other. We got a great relationship. She's she's not rattled by it. I, I got a girlfriend from several years ago that listened to me do interviews talking about the skills and then would burst into flames when I used them. That's a bad sign. Trustworthy people trust. And it's one of the reasons why I'm no longer with her and one of the reasons why I'm delighted by who I'm with now. That's amazing. So do you have children? I got a uh, the president of the Black Swan Group, Brandon Voss, is my son, and he's in his mid-30s. So I just want to talk about negotiation as he was growing up for a second, yeah. because I have four, 12 to 27. The 12-year-old, we should probably talk possible? about, It's I'm going to send the 12-year-old to you, and then you can start mentoring him, or I'll pay you a general liability retainer to train him for his amazing negotiation skills. <laughs> I, I got to tell you something. The kids get it going to work. We work in my household. Uh, yes. We work. When, yes. when I when I was twelve years old, my father wanted uh, a new garage in the backyard, and we had the old garage. And he handed me and my sister crowbars and said, "Go out in the back, tear down the old garage." Yeah. <laughs> and by doing. And the great thing is, that, I mean, because my husband and I both came from nothing, like zero. And we try as best as we can. The environment has changed a lot. And we try, you know, we really try to not give them everything and to really have them work for things. But this little one, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that you don't have to negotiate on his behalf because he walks out of the room and my husband and I like go, oh. <laughs> like, thank God that's over. Sounds like a smart kid. Sounds like a really smart kid. He's one of the smartest people at such a young age and so mentally developed into being astute and attuned to other people's emotions. Nice. Very impressive. Very cool. Let's hope he uses it for the good, Chris. We'll be talking again. Uh, core <laughs> values. You, you, I could. I already know you guys got core, good core values. You, you raise your kid well. He's going to be fine. Okay, good. That's good. Now I feel better. I feel like I, feel like I, I can actually sleep tonight. <laughs> so we talk about, you know, one of the things I've heard you talk about all the time is, is, is being, if you go in with fear, there's no negotiation. If you go in and you feel nervous or you don't know, cause you know, people don't understand how negotiations work. You get there and like you get very little information and you're having to extract data. You're having to constantly develop the data. When do you feel at any point that, that you're going to say no? How do you say no and get any sort of result um, that you're going to need, whether it be a life or whether it be money or whatever it is. When do you say no, I'm walking away? Well, the great thing about that question is a lot of times people don't realize, they think that saying no is a blanket no. Hmm. When in point, of, in point of fact, you're, you're, whether it's a hostage negotiation or whether it's a business deal, you're saying, you're really saying no to one of four things possibly. The price, the terms, the behavior of the person. And the person or, you know, but, you, you know, if you're saying no to a deal, there's really only probably an element of that. And a lot of people don't realize, they think if I say no to anything, it's a blanket no and I'm rejecting the entire thing. And a real skill is to be able to understand what you're saying no to and then say no to the behavior. Right. Not the person. I mean, it's almost a cliche of what we were taught, separate the person from the behavior. Well, yeah. Okay, great. But how do you do that? Like, in point of fact, the the way to say no, how am I supposed to do that? Which we developed, you know, I and my colleagues, we developed that saying no to terrorists and kidnappers. But what you're really doing is you're saying no to a term 
or aspect of the deal. And you're saying no to it in a way that makes the other side stop and think. You know, a how question makes people stop and think, triggers what Danny Kahneman would call deep thinking. And it also makes them stop and think about you. And in the Black Swan Group, we just really realized in the last year, if you're saying no, you're saying no to one of those four things explicitly. But we'd always taught people to say, how am I supposed to do that four different ways? Like, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? Now, each one of those was the same words, but you're actually saying aspect and a no to different aspects of what's in front of you. You know, one, some of it is a term, some of it is you, some of it is behavior. You know, your tone of voice separates all this stuff out. So once you understand that you could say no and it doesn't blow up the deal, then you start learning how to say no. So I could listen to you talk forever because of the tonality and the tenor the vernacular in which you use and, and how you come across. And that's one of the things I have to often talk to my clients about was just exactly what you said, wherever you put that pause, wherever you put that comma, is it a statement? Yeah. Is it a run on? I have to, we have to talk about that a lot. How do you continue to develop that practice? Okay. Like I assume basically that people got ADHD and I started that when I was, I do keynote, I do a lot of keynotes. I speak to groups a lot, but even with people, like it, most people haven't practiced actually listening. Listening is work. Once you get it down, it's pretty cool, mm. but it's enough work that most people don't actually listen. So I will talk to you not as if you're a great listener, but as if I may actually be really boring and I got to do everything I could possibly do to keep your attention. So it's going to be, and it's going to be all in pausing, pacing, inflection, upward, downward emphasis. You know, I want to do everything I could possibly do to keep you engaged. And I'm putting the burden on me instead of putting it on you. And then I listen to myself and I look, look for feedback and I watch people when I talk to them. You know, again, I know it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, hard, hard to pay attention at all when somebody's droning on, you know, so how do I, how do I help somebody listen to me? I do everything I can to help. Oh, Chris, I love that. So when have you become in your amazing career, has there ever been a point where you have been flappable? Like you're worried something happened, your voice goes up, you maybe have a visceral reaction, you get hot, you feel the pressure and you're like, this is not going as it normally does. What happens for you? Well, you know, when I was a hostage negotiator, we always operated in teams and I believe very strongly in a team concept. And so then I, I never felt like we were out of control because the straw that broke the camel's back, to use a phrase, the straw in and of itself didn't break the camel's back. There was, it was a cumulative effect. And if you're working with a team, you got plenty of latitude to make mistakes because it's never any one move. And then you start reading things in advance and you realize that you're not going to make every deal. And hostage negotiators have roughly a 93% success rate, whether it's domestic contained situations or whether it's international kidnapping negotiations, extremely high success rate. But that also means that no matter how good you are, sometimes things just going to go bad and you got to really accept that. And my old boss, Gary Nessner, he used to always use the phrase best chance of success. And I negotiated a whole bunch of times, so something went bad, and it went bad ugly. And I remember thinking, like, well, Gary always said best chance of success. That, by definition, means 
it's not a guarantee and mm. it's going to go sideways. So that was professionally as a hostage negotiator. Now, personally, when do I get triggered? If I find somebody lying to me or wasting my time, which is essentially lying or not listening, which is wasting my time. You know, I'm very sensitive to time being our most valuable commodity. Absolutely. And consequently, we had somebody that we were involved with professionally several years ago. And this person said, geez, you know, if you waste Chris' time, he acts like you stole something from him. And he said it as if he was mystified by that. And that, you know, I was in a wrong frame of mind. You know how when you say somebody says something, it sounds like an accusation and you listen to it and you go like, no, nah, that's actually the case. And I remember thinking like, yeah, if you stole my time, it's it's a commodity that I have a limited amount of. Right. So if somebody's lying to me or wasting my time, you know, that'll, that'll make me mad. What does mad look like? Uh, you know, I'll, re I'll get blunt. Uh, I had a colleague of mine in the FBI once say to me, when I was being direct, what I would say was direct and honest. <laughs> he said to me, dealing with you is like getting hit in the face with a brick. And so it, it could it could be harsh and dependent upon your sensitivity to it. Like everybody's sensitive to that. Now, the real issue is how quickly do you get over it? Mm. I happen to get over that stuff really quickly. So using the golden rule, which is highly flawed, since I give, get over it quickly, I figure you do too. Right. But in point of fact, two out of three people don't get over it quickly. And so, you know, I'll get, I'll be harsh and I won't think anything of it. Uh, you know, I want to be friendly the next day or an hour later. And the other person would be like, are you kidding me? Do you remember how much of a jerk you were an hour ago? And you think I could talk to you calmly now? And my attitude is like, yeah, <laughs> because I, you know, I, re you know, I'm an assertive. One in three people is an assertive. And, you know, emotionally, we're like Wolverine. We heal fast. <laughs> we get over it. And not everybody does. So interesting that you say that because I get accused of that often. From a man, I believe it's a little bit more acceptable. Yeah. But for a female, I have all of your same values and your morals about time. If I'm spending time, I will, I'm very generous and gracious with my time. I'm not one of those people that charge and nickel and dime and do all of that stuff. If it's if it's for the greater good and people can learn and I can impact or inspire, I will help a hundred percent. But if you waste my time, or if you have a if you lie to me, I have a lying clause in my contract that we developed last year. You lie to me once, your retainer is fully mine a hundred percent the second time you lie. So you have one pass. And I don't mean I mean miscommunication or omission still is a lie because it's still wasting my time and I have to go back. Yep. And so that's it. Well, very close to you, very similar to you. If I do lose it, which doesn't really happen very often, it's just I get extremely succinct and very blunt. And then I'm like, maybe two or three hours later, does people want sushi? Like, what are we doing here for? Like, what's going on for lunch? And they're like, and the doors close and people are like, you know, I feel really, you know, upset that you talked to me like that. And I'm like, wait, what did I say? And somebody will tell me, I'm like, that was like three hours ago. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, what is so going three on? hours ago. Right. It was three hours ago. Like, get over it. Like, are we living in that snowflake society everywhere? <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. So, yeah, I really appreciate that. I want to switch to business. Most of our listeners are executives or well-funded entrepreneurs, and they're going through growth. And whether it be talent, whether it be strategy, whether it be product, what are a couple tips that you can give um, our entrepreneurs or executives on critical negotiation with their team or with vendors or with service providers? You know, hear the other side out first. 
And how do you know if you've heard them out? How do you know if they feel heard out? You know, the magic words are that's right. Not your right, but that's right. Now, I don't know exactly how many agreements can be come to as soon as the other person says that's right. I don't know what that percentage is. My guess is it's somewhere between a third and a half. And it may even be high in some instances higher than that. There's a significant enough deals that will make themselves for you, will come right to you, that the only the other side is only waiting to be heard, to feel heard, and they'll give you the deal, that it's worth it. And it just is. And it seems like a very indirect route because you see what the obvious answer is. And the only th- it, it, it makes no sense that the, the only thing the other person is waiting for and they don't even know the triggering event is to feel hurt and to feel understood. There's a big difference between whether or not you understand and whether or not they feel understood. Massive difference. And the only way that they feel understood is for you to articulate back to them what you think that they feel. A rental negotiation about a year and a half ago in the midst of the pandemic, which made no sense for, for the landlord to be raising the rent, theoretically made no sense because this is when nobody's being evicted in a pandemic. And if, even if they were being evicted, the courts are closed. So you got to go to court, get somebody evicted. And even if none of those things occur, it's hard to get anybody evicted anyway. Right. So the landlord's raising a rent, which is a risky move. And the tenant is like, you got to be kidding me. So they get into the interaction. And it was it was a woman. I think women, this is emotional intelligence, intelligence negotiation. Women pick it up faster than men. That doesn't mean they're any better at it. But we do know that they have a tendency to get started in it more quickly. So she gets back to the landlord. She says, what's the landlord's point of view? Landlord's point of view is, I got bills too. My taxes are going up. My utilities are going up. None of my expenses have gone down. I'm a great landlord. I'm responsive. And my expenses are going up. I'm entitled to a rent increase. So she gets on the phone with the landlord to make him feel understood. And she says, you know, you're raising the rent on me. Because your bills are not going away. Your taxes are going up. Your utility bills are going up. Your grocery bills are going up. None of your bills are going away. And that's why you want to raise the rent on me. Now, the critical issue here is when you have demonstrated what you understand for the other side, you don't say another word. You go dead silent. You don't follow up with, but here's why you shouldn't raise it on me. Here's all the reasons why I'm a great tenant. I pay my rent on time. I don't destroy all this, all your reasons. Don't throw any of them out. Just make sure the other side feels understood. So she lays out all the landlord's reasons and even adds some of her own as to why it might be raising a rent. And he literally says, that's right. But if keeping you as a tenant calls for me not raising a rent, I'm not going to raise your rent. And it was done. Now, whatever that percentage is, where the other side will come all the way to you, whether it's an employee and it's just a behavior negotiation. You know, you're in the most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. Behavior is a negotiation over time, compliance. Whatever the percentage is, by getting making the other side feel understood, it's worth it. I think one of the point, most poignant things that you said is, and you didn't say this, I'm going to paraphrase, shut up. Yeah. After you state everything in a very kind and respectful tone, after you've yep. given them all of their reasoning that they just said to you, don't talk. Don't talk. Because the next person to speak is the one who loses the negotiation. 
Yeah, or you you just ruined everything you set up to now. Right. You know, win lose sort of in the eye of the beholder. But you keep talking, and you just erased all the great communication that you laid out there. You stepped on all, all over it. So, Chris, in all of the time that you've done this, so for me, I, I kind of go into silos. I kind of think I, when I hear newer negotiators or I hear newer you know, millennials that are coming up and learning this amazing skill, like you said, if you don't use it, it fades. You have to constantly practice. What are a couple of the, the most common mistakes that, that you hear or see in front of you happen in negotiation that you just, it's literally, Chris, it's like a little tweak. It's like just a small thing. If you just wouldn't have said this, or you just would have done this, or you would have said it like this, what are a couple of those mistakes that people make? Well, the first one really is tone of voice. Like you can say something like you got a good point or you can say the exact same thing and say, I think you're an idiot. You know, you can say that was that was a really good point. <laughs> or you can say that was a really good point. Boy, you're smart. Those are insults. So first is tone of voice, tonality. And a second, like if you if you're trying to, if you're trying to do what I just described as a summary, like I'm, I'm coaching a guy through a client negotiation probably about a year and a half ago. He only wanted to summarize the stuff that supported his position. He was a guy running in-person events. They go from in-person to virtual. So they, they got to they gotta provide a more robust package. So that the virtual package is actually worth far more than the in-person. And the client partook of some of it and then decided they wanted a full refund. And I said, all right, so summarize the situation from the other person's point of view. And what he wanted to do was, well, like, I told the summary, the facts are, I told you this was coming. The fact is that we told you there were no refunds. The fact is that we're giving you more than you bargained for. And the fact is you did some of it and you used some of it up. You know, he wanted to summarize his facts. Wow. You know, it's a little bit like, what was that vice presidential debate between uh, Harris and Pence? Hmm. And Penn says, you're entitled to the facts, but you're not entitled to your own facts or, you know, whoever threw that out there. Right. Well, the good communication is, yeah, they're entitled to their facts. You know, don't ignore them. Don't deny them. Throw their facts out there. And what we see from a lot of mistakes are people want to summarize the facts that favor them and ignore the other side's facts. When in fact, for the great communication, the reverse is true. Right. And do you think that tonality i get what you said about voice and inflection and things like that but do you notice when these people are maybe reading back the other person's facts or, or their own facts do you notice their voice gets a lot more direct and a lot more elevated opposed to just keeping it very neutral during the entire process and maybe even i tend to go a little bit a little bit ginger is what i say kind of like i retract a little bit to let them feel heard and to let them feel like they have a lot of room or a lot of space i like Number one, number two, number three, it's like, it's not a court document. It's like, let's have a conversation. Do you see that in tonality change? Yeah, that's, that's very, that's very accurate. That when you're summarizing your facts, you know, it then does the tone of voices. You idiot. I got you. What's wrong with you? You're so stupid. I'm shocked. Yeah that you, how do you remember to breathe? You know, <laughs> I like that one. You're so stupid. How do you even remember to I'm breathe? I'm going to call you. That's going to be my, I'm going to be like, Chris, how do you remember to breathe? <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. What's the longest negotiation you've ever been in? Uh, well, like when I was a hostage negotiator, some terrorist kidnappings the last years, like literally years. Wow. And now they're not daily contacts. Right. Like the, the FARC in uh, Columbia. Mm -hmm. I mean, they'd hold people for years. 
They know people for so long. Phenomenal rescue of some Americans uh, and um, Ingrid Betancourt, who was a Colombian and French citizen, I believe. The Americans have been in there for six years and Ingrid Betancourt, I think, had been in there for seven. She'd actually had a child by one of her, her captors. She'd been in there so long. That was, you know, that was the nature of the game. You know, terrorist groups, Taliban, you know, they'll hold people for years because they develop an infrastructure. Kidnapping is a business. The longer you're in a business, the more infrastructure you have. But the conversations are not play, taking place every day or even every week or sometimes not even every month. You know, so you, you learn you learn the velocity and the cadence of the negotiations. So in kidnappings, some of them last a long time. Burnham case in the Philippines, 13 months. The Schilling case that kicked off the year prior to that was eight months. You know, nature of the game. Business negotiations, these days, there's two rules that we live by. It's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. So we're going we're gonna to look for the profile of the deal very early on. Um, it's also a sin to take a long time to get a bad deal. So we're going to look for what bad deals look like early on. And we're pulling a lot of data on that. We, you know, the bad deals is a category we call them halves, hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating. It's a, uh, a phrase, a terminology that I learned from Joe Polish in Genius Network. And so with our biz dev team, First of all, I told our head of biz dev, look, walk, walk away from the halves. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to do business with the halves. They're going to suck the life out of us. And so she was very relieved. Phenomenal negotiator. She remembers the day I said, I don't care about the halves. I'm not holding you. You don't have to make a deal with everybody. Then as she's training people, I said, well, let's look at what's a profile of a half. You know, what are the indicators? How do we sniff them out early on? And then I said, all right, so what do the halves cost us? A half costs you anywhere from two to five times the time that a good client will cost you. So if it costs you five times the amount of time, that's an 80% cut in pay to start with. Wait a minute, an 80% cut in pay? No, we're not doing that. And then the other thing that she found out is the halves are not repeat customers. You know, the hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating people, you're, gonna, you're taking an 80% cut in pay and they're not gonna repeat and they're not gonna refer. So why would you do business with these knuckleheads? So these days, we do not take a long time to make deals. If it's a long time to make a deal, you're keeping us from our good customers. And we will move on because I'm not taking an 80% cut in pay. And you're not going to repeat, so you're not worth the, the effort. I could not agree with you more. I'm changing that now internally to be called halves. Because I, I mean, the pay is one thing, you're a thousand percent right, but the emotional energy that you take away from positive, good, strong people that want to build with you is just, it's just undeniably bad. Yeah. So what are the three things not business related that everyone should always negotiate? I know I used a triple positive, an absolute statement. I know you can handle it. You really got to think about implementation. Like the black swan group, we are not in the yes business. We're completely out of the yes business because most people hear yes and they think, you know, everything's going to automatically fall into place, that we understand each other and things are going to automatically fall in place. So we're always looking at implementation, next steps, agreement on next steps. What's this look like going forward? And, you know, we want to feel early on whether or not the other side is interested in a long-term relationship. So we're always negotiating good relationships, implementation, next steps. And so much starts to fall into place as soon as you do that. And then getting the new members on our team used to, so if we haven't heard from the other side and we're waiting to hear from them, I'll bet 
they're waiting to hear from us. So let's re-engage and find out where we are because we missed something. So we communicate, we negotiate next steps all the time. We, you know, we're living off of what are the next steps? How do we move forward? How, how does this not get caught in Never Never Land? Tell our audience what, what you do and Black Swan does now and tell our audience a little about the book that we're going to link. Yeah, we coach and uh, train negotiations and we coach people through deals. And we're doing way more coaching than I ever thought. I never really envisioned coaching to be part of it. I thought it might be some small sliver of it. You teach somebody how to negotiate and they'll realize that it's a new method and then they'll study it and they'll love it. And so we coach hot performers. We market the top performers. We do a lot of training for companies, but generally companies need as much culture change as they need negotiation. Like if they got negotiation problems, they probably got culture problems internally. So we go to companies all the time, but we realize like if it's not a learning environment, then it's really hard to get our learning, our new learning to stick because their environment doesn't reinforce learning. We coach and train negotiations. We coach people into life-changing deals on a regular basis. Like this deal is gonna change my life is the phrase that somebody tells us weekly, and it's really cool. The energy that you get from that, when you see the light go off in their eyes and when they feel like they've coupled with you and they've partnered with you, that is the absolute best feeling for me in dealing with the client. So I imagine it's very close to that for you. Very gratifying, yeah. Chris, this has been so fun and so incredible, and I wanna do it again with you soon. You have to promise I would just love it on your next move love it too, yeah. to do it again. This entire show is based on obstacles and opportunities and how you spun life in an amazing direction. What's the biggest obstacle that you've gone through thus far that's turned into an opportunity or a blessing? Wow. I mean, every one of them is. We're in the middle of one right now. My son, Brandon, who runs a company, just tore the heck out of one of his shoulders. And we got to put him on the sideline. You know, he, he's got to go on the table sooner rather than later, and he's going to be out of action for a while. So as a result, and like he is, he's a, he's if he's not our top coach, he might be our top coach. And he's and if he's not our top trainer, he might be our top trainer. You know, suddenly he's on a sideline. We got to fill in. We got to, everybody's got to step up. We got to, we, the people that have been taking their time developing, we got to accelerate their develop. You know, team's got to rally yeah. around him. Yeah. And big events like that have shaped my life in a really good direction. And I'm like, wow, you know, pulling him out of the lineup, you know, he's, he's our 300 hitter. He's batting cleanup. If we're a baseball team, you know, he's fourth in rotation. Like, so everybody's got to step up, you know, yeah. we got to work together even more. We got to be even more of a team. And, you know, we're in the middle of coping with that now. And, and then he's going to, he's going to be recovering for a while. He does so much for us. It's going to create this big hole that it's going to be awesome to figure out how to, how to fill it in. We're all going to get better as a result. Absolutely. And how, how incredible that'll be for him to watch on the sidelines of what he helped be so intricate in providing. So that's going to be an awesome change for all of you. Yeah. 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 And then he's going to get some recharge time too. I mean, uh, you know, maybe the only person who works harder than me is him, you know, so he'll get, he'll get, he'll get a, a, an opportunity to recharge, spend some more time with his family. Chris, this was so fun. I could literally talk to you for hours and hours. I, I absolutely loved it. So fun. Can't wait to do it again. Please tell the audience where they can find you and learn more. 
Yeah, the, the best thing is to subscribe to our newsletter, which is complimentary, but it's also concise. It's concise and it's actionable. The fact that it's complimentary, like I used to get the free daily 10-point briefing from the Wall Street Journal. That is not concise. Like there's so much, there was, so, you know, there's so much there to read. I don't know what to read. So our negotiation strategies, concise, actionable, comes in on to your email, wherever you're on the world, Tuesday morning, get Monday behind you. You're going to find stuff in there that you could use now. The best way to subscribe is vast majority of your audience, probably in the U.S., mm -hmm. domestic U.S. Mm -hmm. Text to sign up function. You text to the number 33777. The number you text to is 33777. The message you send is black swan method. Three words, not cap sensitive, spaces between the words. And we will It'll link that for, for the audience so nobody has to wreck while they're driving. We'll link everything in the show notes. Sweet. Sweet, yeah. And then and the, what the newsletter is, a gateway to everything. The website is blackswanltd.com. We got a lot of free stuff that's very usable, starting with the newsletter. Then when we got training you know, we got, we're, we're going to be in Dallas, I think in the fall, we're going to do a two day event. We're going to do a one day event. You know, you're going to find out about, you get training announcements. We don't clutter it with 50 things, but the newsletter is really the best way to supplement and to move forward and keep getting better. So good, Chris. Thank you again so much. It was a pleasure. I have enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E, Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.